Hi, I'm Manish Thavan with my good friend Puneet Khurana. We run a blog by the name of stoicinvesting.com. This is our podcast series. Life is too short to learn from just your own experiences. To inculcate vicarious learning, we will be interviewing and profiling interesting people from different walks of life. Hopefully, this endeavor will shorten the learning curve for our audience. Our guest today is an industry veteran with 40 years experience. He has done some pioneer work in the world of momentum investing research. In fact, in the year 2012, his research paper won the first prize in prestigious Wagner Awards for advances in active investment management. He introduced to the world the concept of dual momentum, which combines the relative strength price momentum with trend following absolute momentum. He managed hedge funds in the 1980s working with some of the best traders in the world like Paul Tudor Jones, Louis Bacon, Monroe Trout and John Henry. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the author of book Dual Momentum, Mr. Gary Antonacci. Welcome Gary, uh, or I should say um swagatam. I'm really wishing to, uh, since you're so well with Hindi, namaskar. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Manish and I have been looking forward for this conversation. Really welcome you lot. Namaskar, Punichi. Namaste, Gary ji. How are you? <laughs> Namaskar, Gary ji. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Uh, so, Gary, let's uh, let's start from the very start. How from being a Vietnam vet to a comedy magician to time in India. and then to trend following and momentum investing uh, take us through a journey sounds very fascinating well uh yeah when i was young i uh, i did a lot of different things uh, as you mentioned uh, after i uh, graduated from university i i became a stockbroker with merrill lynch and uh, i was always looking for unusual underexploited opportunities so i focused in on stock options at the time this was in the mid 1970s and uh gold stocks and uh worked with some hedge funds and uh decided I I wanted to be more involved with research and portfolio management so I went on and got my MBA degree from uh Harvard Business School started managing money part time uh my fellow students their families uh even one of my professors and I've never had to get a job after that I've always managed money or uh done research and uh in the 1980s I started some commodity pools that were very successful using portfolio theory principles and some of the best traders in the world like Paul Tudor Jones right. Richard Dennis Lewis Bacon Monroe Trout uh John Henry and uh was able to semi retire after 10 years a brokerage firm bought out my business so so then I did a few other things that I enjoyed doing like comedy magic and uh, <laughs> always uh kept my foot in in the door in terms of investments right and uh, followed what was going on and um about 7 or 8 years ago I decided to research everything that was out there in terms of public research published research having to do with momentum right. and 
after surveying the entire field, I saw that there was tremendous opportunity there, but that it was not being exploited very well. So that's when I decided to do some of my own research. Right, right. So from the very starting, when you started with the funds, uh, were you focused on momentum investing, or did you, you know, have, have your uh, fair share of experiments with value investing and other kind of, you know, investing uh, areas, investing philosophies? I, I looked at everything, basically. I looked at value, and I, I, I didn't care for the high volatility there. Right. Uh, and um, I looked for long-short type opportunities. I basically wanted to find something that provided uh, less volatility, uh, less bear market exposure, uh, especially as I've gotten on in the years. So that's what got me more interested in momentum because I could see some opportunities there not just from relative strength momentum, but if you, uh, trend following is a type of momentum as well. And by using a trend following overlay, uh, you could reduce your downside exposure considerably. Uh, Gary, can you take us through a a bit of experience with uh, some of the prominent investors you have worked with? And, um, you know, also in your initial phase of your career or your investing career, so to speak, uh, who are the mentors you've learned tremendously from and, you know, who probably had a large impact on your investing style? Well, um, back in the 1970s, I, I tried to follow what was being done on a risk management side. Right. So I, I explored, you know, all various uh, technical uh, and tactical asset allocation uh, programs. And that's what moved me in the direction of, of commodities and futures trading. Right. Because I, I figured if you could manage the risk, then the returns uh, could take care of themselves. Right. Uh, providing you had some intelligent uh, portfolio principles right. in place. So I would say, you know, first my first mentors were some of the books out there that talked about um, trend-following methods. Right. Uh, Richard Donchin was an early pioneer. Right. Uh, Ed Sakota, right. who uh, gave a, a strong endorsement for my book, he was he was an early pioneer in this type of trading, um, and there were many others uh, that I can even skip my mind now. Justin right. Amos was one; he wrote some books. Um, Nick Darvis wrote a book uh, which was actually moment, a form of momentum trading, okay. called "How I Made Two Million Dollars in the in the Stock Market." Yeah, and that was that. rotation, rotational relative strength. Right. And then when I actually got into the business myself um, and became a commodity pool operator, my I was really inspired by people like Paul Tudor Jones because I could sit and watch him trade right. and, and actually uh, see how the markets were not efficient like we were taught in business school, that uh, there were people out there, not very many, right. but there were people out there who who did have an edge right. and could at, earn abnormal returns. So watching people like Lewis Bacon and uh, Paul Tudor Jones and John Henry uh, was an education. Also watching some of the bad traders. Too, <laughs> right, but, uh, right. I, right. I, uh, I did due diligence on everyone. And one of the – initially before I became a commodity pool operator myself, I worked with someone who was a uh, fundamentally based uh, commodities trader – Right. And uh, he could be right, but it could take him, 
you know, years to be right. And meanwhile, you know, the markets could move strongly against him. So that, that impressed upon me, again, the importance of risk management. But, but uh, uh, Gary, do you think that uh, the way fundamental people behave um, when it comes to commodities, which where leverage also come into picture, and the way people behave on their investment stocks, do you think the results vary dramatically and... Uh, that is why one strategy, one way of strategy works when it comes to stocks, but not in commodities. Or do you think uh, momentum has an edge no matter what kind of asset class you're investing in? It Well, depends what you mean by momentum. Momentum is relative strength. Right. certainly has an edge uh, everywhere. Uh, my, my blog post I put out yesterday shows that just using relative strength momentum, you, you can do so much better than just uh, passive uh, type of investing. Uh, but in terms of risk management, also trend following, and I use absolute momentum for that, but trend following uh, can, can give, give you uh, an advantage uh, pretty much everything you do as well. And the two are closer together than you think because even though you think of commodities as having uh, high leverage and uh, being risky and so fundamental analysis might not be so good there. When you look at how people actually invest in stocks, if you look at the Dalbar studies, it shows that people become emotionally caught up in their right. investments. Uh, right. They get swayed by fear and greed, and they, they sell when they should be buying and buy when they should be selling. So even there, if you just go off of fundamentals, uh, you can end up severely uh, affecting your returns in an adverse fashion. I believe the last Dalbar figure showed that people underperformed just the S&P 500 index by 45% a year just because they made poor timing decisions right. in, in their mutual fund investments. Yeah, you know, that's that's interesting because uh, the moment you said that, I reminded of my conversation with uh, Wesley Gray, and um, he has also written a forward to your book. And the, so the basic idea is not value or momentum as for him. The idea is to remove the um, the biases when it comes to investing either fundamentally or momentum. And that is why I think that the major idea is that move towards more systematic trading or systematic investing than being, you know, than bringing any kind of discretion into the decision making. Is, is that a right way of looking at it rather than separating between fundamental and momentum way of investing? Well, there's, there's two aspects of that. Right. Uh, what Wes was speaking about is having a systematic rules-based approach to the right. markets. Right. And that's, that's very good, of course, because that does take your emotion out of the decision-making process. And uh, studies have shown, meta-studies, many different studies have shown that models outperform experts. Uh, models even outperform experts who are using models. Right. But there's another thing that we're talking about here too and that has to do with individual investor behavior right and even when you have models like you can have a, a quantitative model that will pick stocks for you and based on valuation you can have one that will pick stocks for you based on momentum but you still have to deal with the swings in the market and Sometimes, like with value investing or stock momentum investing, those swings can be larger right. than you would get from the market itself, from the broad-based market indices. Right. So 
to my way of thinking, you need something to deal with that as well. And that's where some type of trend following overlay comes into play. Even if you were to get a somewhat lower return, it would be worth it just to keep your emotions out of the equation. And in fact, if you do it properly, you don't have to receive a lower return. You can actually get a higher return. What happens is you, you don't have to make up these horrendous bear market losses. Right. Your stocks drop 50%. You need a 100% gain just to get back to break even. Right. So if you can avoid those severe market drawdowns, you can pick up right where you left off when the markets start going back up again. Okay. In fact, I was going through one of your back tests, and uh, it's the not per se the relative uh, uh, momentum, but the absolute momentum is the one which actually saves your backside, uh, doesn't it? it? That is the one which protects you from the drawdown. That's correct. That protects you from the drawdown. But they both <coughs> uh, complement each other and they both enhance return. Def definitely. If you go through some of my blog posts, my recent blog posts, you can see that. You, either one by themselves is, is, nearly not, is not nearly as good as the two together. There's a synergy that takes, right. takes effect. Right, so, let's, so let's talk about that. Now, I understand broadly the concept of dual momentum. Uh, you're essentially mixing relative strength with trend following, isn't it? Uh, now, I would love you, love to, for you to elaborate on that. Let's break it down. Uh, shall we, you know, let's talk about relative momentum to start with, and then we'll talk about absolute momentum where you look back to, uh, 12 months, and then finally the marriage of the two. Well, first we have to understand what momentum is. Uh, momentum means persistence in performance. Right. And this was demonstrated back in 1937 uh, through the first academic paper on it, showing that uh, stocks that had performed well during the, the last year tended to perf perform better during the next year as well. Right. So with relative momentum or relative strength momentum, you're comparing performance of one asset to another or to a group of assets, and you're going with which with whichever one has been stronger during your look back period. Right. And let's just use let's just use one year as an example. Okay. So let's say that we're taking the S and P 500 index, and I prefer to use indices for two reasons. First, the results have been better since 1800. Uh, Researchers have looked at applying momentum to everything, stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities, uh, stock indices, and they found the stock indices work the best. And secondly, uh, when you're dealing with stocks and momentum, you have very high transaction costs, and we're starting to get into scalability issues, too, as more and more people jump into that, those markets uh, with stocks. So <clears throat> let's take the S&P 500 right. as our... Uh, primary index. Now, to have relative strength momentum, you need more than one asset. So, so the S&P 500 uh, we'll use as, as, our, as our core holding. Now, you can use the Sensex or anything else. Right. Let's, let's, take the, let's take that as our, our core holding. And then let's take the rest of the world as, as our alternative asset. And there's exchange-traded funds for both. So what we do is uh, we say whichever of the two has been stronger during the past year will be the one that we'll invest in for the coming month. Right. And, then the, and then the month after, we reevaluate it. And if the S&P 500 has still been the strongest over the past year, we stay with it. If now 
the all-world index becomes stronger than we switch over. So it, it's like switching from a slow tra- from a local train to an express train. Right. And, and you just keep doing that. Keep doing that, and uh, <clears throat> you end up uh, with with a substantially higher return, about the same risk risk profile. Right. But I sh- I show that from 1971 up to the present, if you just do that simple switch between U.S. stocks and non-U.S. stocks, you end up making an extra 300 basis points a year on average. Now, that's an enormous advantage. Right. Uh, the, the one problem with that is you don't get rid of your downside exposure, so you're still subject to behavioral biases and large bear market drawdown. Right. So in order to reduce that, what most people do is they diversify into something like uh, bonds, fixed income. Right. And there's some issues associated with that. First of all, your return over the long run on bonds is substantially lower than on stocks. That hasn't been the case so much recently. We've been in a (laughs) strong bull market in bonds up until a year or, or two ago. But historically... The, return, the excess return from stocks has been almost twice as high as from bonds. So that's, that's one problem with doing a permanent allocation to fixed income. The other is that bonds have risk, uh, risk factors themselves. Right. And if you go back at rolling 10-year periods, you'll find that you've actually had more downside risk associated with intermediate-term bonds than you, than you have associated with stocks, uh, right. surprisingly. Right. And bonds can go into... Uh, very long extended bear markets. Right. So rather than be in bonds permanently and have a drag on performance, right. what I said was, well, when's the best time to be in bonds? Right. And the best time to be in bonds is when stocks are weak. Right. For two reasons. First of all, uh, the Federal Reserve in this country notices that uh, when stocks are weak, you know, we tend to be going into a recession. And in recessions, they want to stimulate the economy, so they'll keep interest rates low, which is which is good for bond prices. Right. The other factor is when stocks are weak, people move their money or take their new money, and instead of putting it in the stock market when they see stocks are going down, they put it into bonds, right. which again uh, strengthens strengthens bonds at that time. So then I said, okay, well, how do we tell if stocks are strong or weak? And for that, we use the second form of momentum, which is called absolute or time series momentum, where instead of comparing the performance of, say, U.S. stocks to some other market, like invested in stocks, we compare the performance of U.S. stocks to itself over time. So if stocks, U.S. stock market has been up over the past 12 months, we say, it has positive absolute momentum. If it's been down over the past year, we say that it has negative absolute momentum. Now, because momentum is is persistence in performance, it works just as well with absolute as with relative momentum. And what that means is if stocks have been down over the past year, they tend to continue going down right. over the near term. So we will look at the S&P 500 its performance over the past year, and if it has gone up over the past year, we'll stay in stocks. And if it's gone down over the past year, we'll stand aside, and that's when we'll go into some 
low-risk form of bonds, like aggregate bonds, which have only about a five-year duration, as, as our safe harbor. Right. Now, in order to combine the two together and to get dual momentum, what we say is, okay, let's look first at the S&P 500, because that tends to be our, our lead stock market indicator. Right. And if that's been down over the past year, then we want nothing to do with stocks, and we'll go into the bond market until we reevaluate next month. Right. If the S&P 500 has been positive over the past year, it has positive absolute momentum, then we'll compare the performance of the S&P 500 index to the performance of the all-world all index. And we'll go into whichever of those two has been stronger. Right. Okay. So, um, so can you tell me one thing? So when you do this kind of stuff, you're taking 12 months as your time period. Any particular reason for taking 12 months? And does it work for um, shorter time frames if you reduce the time frames? It does work for shorter time frames. Uh, the and how short? Uh, three months. Momentum is a phenomenon that researchers have found with uh, stocks anyway. Right. That works works anywhere from three to twelve months. Okay. Now, the reason I pick twelve months are, are twofold. First of all, it works works a little better with twelve months than for say six or three, uh, based on many different studies. That if you go back long enough in time, right. the, the second is twelve months was come up was discovered. You might say in nineteen thirty seven by Ooh. two. Uh, researchers back then, and it's held up well ever since then, going forward in time and going backwards in time. So rather than getting involved in trying to search for an optimal parameter, and right. there's always problems when you do a type of data mining or searching, I prefer to go with something that has shown that it works all the way back in 1937 and right. continues to uh, why not stay with it? Another added advantage to using 12 months rather than a shorter time frame is you have fewer signals, which means there are fewer whipsaws in and out of the market. Right. I prefer to <clears throat> trade as uh, infrequently as possible. Right. If I could if I could never trade, that would be ideal. But <laughs> in order to be in tune with market forces, right. you have you have to trade a little bit. And but I try to minimize that. Well, I think it was uh, Warren Buffett who said, uh, my profits come from sitting and not from trading. Right, right. So, um, you know, uh, in this particular case, uh, I just want to know that when you're using this 12 months time frame, uh, you know, there are a lot of, lot of questions about systematic trades uh, on the indices and a lot of people who claim to have, you know, strategies for, let's say, four or five days in this, this, for example, swing traders and all that stuff. Have you gone back to test your strategies in these kind of scenarios? And um, so when I'm saying short term, I mean ultra short term. So where I'm coming from is that maybe the strategy works. At this. Does it matter how much transaction cost come into picture and how much of return goes away because of the transaction cost in your model? Well, transaction costs are are a factor. They're not a major factor. From the dual momentum approach I just described to you, there's only 1.3 switches per year. Okay. And using just, just relative strength momentum, there's less than one trade per year. Right. So transaction costs are minimal uh, if you're if you stay away from 
applying momentum to individual stocks. Right. So if you apply it to stocks, it's, it's a whole different story. Transaction costs can be uh, very, very high. Right. But the, the big problem has to do with the, the nature of the markets and the time frame that you're using. Okay. Now, stocks tend to be uh, trending, uh, which means momentum works, from a 3- to 12-month interval. But when you go out to 3- to 5 years, they become mean reverting. And that becomes the domain of value investing, right. where uh, stocks that have been battered down over a long period of time uh, tend to outperform after that. Okay. Now, the same thing applies to a very, very uh, short window, say one month or less. Research has shown that stocks are mean reverting during that period as well. So if you're trying to use trend following during uh, you know, a short, very short interval, you're going to have problems. And before I realized that, before I, I, I knew that, I spent uh, over a year locked in a room with TradeStation trying to look for day trading and swing trading strategies <laughs> right. for short, short time periods. And right. I would come out to drink, to drink tea and eat, eat my meals. And I was pretty much you know, committed to that. And I would find some things that would fit the data beautifully, but none of them ever held up. Mm. Real time after that. Interesting. Well, right, Gary. Uh, you mentioned in your research uh, momentum adjusted for quality. The absolute momentum was adjusted to volatility. What does that mean? I'm not sure what you're talking about. Um, so, adjusted for quality. Uh, so you know, uh, when when I was going through your blog. It mentioned that uh, when you're applying both the momentums to your strategy, uh, relative strength and the trend following one, the absolute momentum, once you do that, the absolute momentum is adjusted for volatility. What, what does that mean? I didn't understand that part. Uh, I don't adjust for volatility. Um, the, uh, there are some people who do, okay. but my, my research has shown that it doesn't make much difference. And I try to keep things as simple as possible. Uh, again, that's, that's a very important principle. There are all kinds of people who try to make momentum complicated. Right. They'll try to incorporate correlations and volatility and many different assets, many of which don't have risk premiums that are as good as just stocks. So I, I think there's a tendency for people to want to overcomplicate things to feel that they've contributed something to whatever model they're using or to think that having things that are more complicated are somehow better. Right. And I've actually found the opposite is true. The more you can simplify something, the better it tends to be. So what stops people from, uh, you know, um, actively pursuing the strategy or, you know, maybe just because it's a very new thing that you have introduced, maybe it'll take time. But what is, do you have some kind of, uh, let's say if you go and you talk to some fund manager, what kind of resistance you see towards this kind of a strategy, if at all? Oh, there's many different re resistances to this kind of strategy. <laughs> right. Um, it's like, where would I start? I did a whole blog post on that about why mo momentum doesn't get re the respect that it should have. Right. And part of it is, as you mentioned, unfamiliarity. People are uh, 
reluctant to adopt something that they're not that familiar with or that they don't see a lot of other people use. So these are behavioral factors. You know, people are affected by hurting. If they don't see a lot of other people using it, then they figure, why should they use it? Uh, To go along with that, you also have uh, risk of uh, career, of their career, because if they're doing something different and they underperform, for a year or two, uh, they'll get fired as right. an asset manager. And every strategy out there is going to have periods where it underperforms its benchmark. There's no way of getting around that. Right. So uh, that's a significant factor. The other is is prejudice, uh, because people have been brought up in, at least when I was in business school, and uh, uh, I'm sure that still goes on, into believing and. First of all, in efficient markets, I think that's fallen by the wayside some. But they also believe that you can't get in and out of the markets, you know, that you have to just buy and hold. The people who try to get in and out are, are being foolish. Now, that's true if you don't know what you're doing. Right. But re- research has shown that absolute momentum uh, is just as powerful as relative momentum. And the research goes back uh, just as far, if not farther. So I don't think that's... That's true as much either. And the other factor has to do with the fact that momentum is so simple. Right. And uh, people dismiss it. And I, I, there are reviews on my, my uh, Amazon page right. in my book right. in which uh, I'd say, you know, it, I get lots and lots of strong, positive five-star reviews. My book, you know, has a five-star overall rating. But there's people out there who just, when they do have negative comments, very often it's because they think, well, this is so simple. How could it be any good? <laughs> right. in, right. fact, in fact, Gary, I, I wrote a small blog explaining how drawdowns eat into the overall CAGR in the very long run. But somehow, maybe because of Warren Buffett's influence, buy and hold has become a religion of sorts. And nobody's supposed to speak ill of it. Uh, I mean, do you think we need a role model on this side to bring about a paradigm shift in the way people think about this? Well, you have some role models, but unfortunately, they're not very systematic. Uh, Paul Tudor Jones is the best example I know of someone who's shown that uh, you don't have to adhere to buy and hold. Uh, And Jim Jim Simons from uh, Renaissance and the Dying, the same thing. They use... uh, technical, you know, tactical, systematic uh, models for their trading, and they've done better than anyone ever has, even Warren Buffett. But is there enough quality research available on, you know, their methodology or something like that? Because uh, that in itself acts as a big, uh, you know, uh, detriment to people taking this as a serious matter of study, so to speak. There didn't used to be, but now now there is. Uh, Just a, a couple of years ago, the first published paper came out on absolute momentum by um, Moskowitz and uh, his, his friends. And then I, I had a paper also the same year. And that paper showed that absolute momentum is just as strong as relative momentum, if not stronger. And since then, there have been a number of other papers that have gone back and shown the same thing. And, in fact, there's one study that goes all the way back to the year 1600, Right. using uh, trend following uh, something that's a form that's almost the same as absolute momentum. Right. 
and it's it's shown to outperform. So I think it's just a matter of time before people wake up to the fact that this is not just an idea. This right. is something that's actually been tested and has shown uh, viability and persistence and consistency going back as far as you want to take it. And in Can fact, I- Gary, to uh, to continue this, I have actually a skeptical question on that. Uh, momentum investing with individual stocks is uh, no longer a neglected strategy per se because a lot and lot of interest is coming into it. But uh, since it is no longer a virgin territory, uh, would we lose alpha? I mean, look at what has happened to the returns of CTAs and mutual funds in United States. There's only a limited amount of honey and more number of bees would probably uh, screw it up for all of us, right? Yes, that's a good question, Manish. The uh, I think what you say is true, and I think we're we're seeing that uh, because uh, in 2006 there were no publicly available momentum funds at all. Right. And now now there's a there's a dozen of them devoted to uh, momentum with individual stocks, and another dozen at least uh, multi-factor funds that use stock momentum. And studies have shown that. Uh, the, these markets are limited in the amount of capacity they, they can take because momentum stocks tend to have bitter, wider bid-ask spreads and there's only so many of them that are effective. Uh, studies have shown that momentum works best in concentrated portfolios where you might have 100 stocks or even, even fewer. And, and it works best when there's Reevaluation of the portfolio monthly or at least quarterly. So if you have a hundred stocks, let's say, and you're going to turn over 25 or 30 percent of them, so you're trading in and out of uh, say 30 of those stocks each quarter, and you have hundreds of billions of dollars all trying to do that at the same time, what do you think is going to happen? Right. Scalability becomes a big big problem, and also uh, transaction costs in general are, are a problem. There have been several studies showing that when you factor in transaction costs, your high momentum profits that appear in these research papers, most if not all of it disappears. True, true. In fact, you know, I was going through the FAQ of Ed Sikota and uh, obviously we all know that he has had 65% CAGR for a good 14 years. But it seems uh, the party party's over as far as the CTAs is concerned, right? Those 14 years were were from, what, the 80s or the 90s, right? And so once too many people enter the fray, uh, uh, it's like uh, they kill the party itself. Well, that that's true. Uh, but there, there's a number of aspects uh, having to do with that. The, the first is, as you say, you know, there are more and more people coming in and and trying to exploit these same opportunities. And you have to have somebody on the other side, right? So you either need somebody who has an opposite view, and that's not very likely because most people in uh, commodities are trend followers, or you have to have hedgers who come in and give up some return in order to reduce the risk (laughs) of their portfolio. And there's only so many hedgers out there. True. Right. Uh, Gary, I have one question. So you have all these, you know, you have studied most of the popular investors and you said you've done a lot of, lot of research on this. Um, are there any other 
technical parameters or technical indicators which have uh, helped, let's say, I'm asking you because uh, Paul Tudor Jones has been very vocal in saying that 200-day moving average has been his way of exiting the markets. Um, do you see any other indicators which are used by popular investors and they have helped you in your research in generating more alpha or making timely exits besides your own model? Well, let, let me clarify what Paul Tudor Jones said. He, he says he pays attention to that and he wants to be on the right side of it. But he doesn't use that for making his buy and sell decisions. <laughs> okay. I've watched him trade, okay. and he's a he's a phenomenal discretionary trader. He uses his his mind is like a computer, and he synthesizes all kinds of information to make his decision. But he's he's unique in that respect. Okay. Uh, but uh, the two hundred day moving average is similar to a twelve month absolute momentum, except that it. It trades much more frequently because it's a little shorter time frame and it's uh, using daily data. So it will keep you on the right side of the market, but you'll get whipsawed a lot using that. Right. So that's why I prefer uh, absolute momentum on a 10 or 12 month duration uh, seems to make the most sense when you're dealing with uh, the markets, the, the larger markets that, that I deal with. Uh, there are other indicators that may have some value. Uh, some people pay attention to uh, market breadth, the advanced decline line, and look for uh, divergences there. I, I think, uh, based on you know the research I've done, I think there's there may be some information there that's uh, can be use useful to people. And you can look at other things like uh, volume and. Uh, Oh, there's, there's just a, a whole slew of things, but it's very difficult to do research into these because what is the lack of data? Uh, you have price data now that goes back quite a bit, but not a lot of not a lot of data for for other factors. True, and and also you have the the whole problem of uh, overfitting your data and making sure that what look good in the past that you have a you know reasonable expectation that it's going to do well in the future yeah yeah true so gary tell me uh, would this dual momentum uh, strategy would also work in case of sip systematic investment plan or dollar dollar cost averaging yes my uh, my next to last uh, blog post went into that how it enhances uh, systematic investing and uh, the two together uh, make a nice combination. Beautiful. Uh, Gary, tell me one thing. You know, the big reason of doing systematic investing is to avoid behavioral biases coming into, you know, play. But uh, doesn't following this strategy in itself very difficult to follow psychologically because you will shift from an all stocks position to an all bond position instantly on the basis of the curves? Do you think psychologically it's a difficult strategy to to run for some people that's true okay. and uh, that's that's why you could just use relative strength if you want and not bother with going into fixed income or just have some fixed income off to the side now in my book I talk about how conservative investors might just take say 30% of their investment portfolio and put it into fixed income and then run 
uh, dual momentum on the rest of their portfolio so that they always have some kind of uh, fixed amount. And you can find whatever percentage that you're comfortable with. But if you're going to participate in the equity markets, uh, you would be better off using both forms of momentum from an economic uh, point of view. Okay, uh, and can I tell you one thing? Uh, how does this? Uh, how does the return portfolio and uh, um, the risk-adjusted return changes if you go from long only to long short kind of strategy, where you start shorting the markets when uh, you know it is asking you to go into bonds? So, have you done that, and how does it change the strategy? It's not as good as going into bonds. You would think that it might be better, but the problem is the markets have a, a natural upward drift to them. And because what we're doing is a slower-moving strategy, by the time we get out and then get back in, and if we, when we're out, we go short and then get back in, you know, not too long from then, uh, we, do, we would do actually a little bit better in bonds. Okay. So if you had a shorter-term approach, I think uh, going short would make more sense. But because we're, we're long-term oriented, and because of what I mentioned earlier, that when stocks are weak, bonds tend to do their best, I think that, uh, that helps in terms of uh, being in bonds when we're in bonds. So, so, Gary, if I'm understanding the strategy correctly, uh, uh, am, would I be correct in saying that at this time now, uh, this strategy would be underperforming S&P? Am I correct? Uh, it depends what time frame you're looking at. If you're looking at just the since this bull market began, yes, uh, that that's correct. But you really have to look at a full market cycle sure, sure. to to determine if uh, you know how well this performance really is, and preferably more than one market cycle. Yeah, yeah, def- definitely. Yeah. The, yeah, I just wanted to uh, understand if I'm picking up the nuances right. Uh, because if it's a drawdown, the whole edge of the strategy is that it saves you from the drawdown, right? That's not the whole edge. It, what happens is that because of relative strength momentum, you also earn some some very uh, attractive returns just from switching from U.S. to non-U.S. stocks. Right. And if you were to look at uh, just bull markets and forget about bear markets, if you were only to use absolute momentum, you would underperform, right. uh, say, say, the U.S. stock market. But by using both, both together, at, uh, relative you know, momentum applied to U.S. and non-U.S. stocks, you actually outperform buy and hold, even in bull markets, if you have the patience uh, to let it work for you. Now, over the past uh, what, seven or eight years, uh, the uh, U.S. market has been stronger than non-U.S. Uh, stocks, so we haven't had an opportunity for that to come in and enhance our return during this time. That's why I say over the long run, uh, this will work in your favor. The other thing you should understand is that this strategy of dual momentum does not get rid of short-term volatility. Right. And uh, people need to realize that because, uh, in fact, I got an email uh, just the other day saying, uh, well, I've been doing this for six months, and I'm underperforming. You know, <laughs> I'm not making as much money, you know. As, so what's going on? And I say, well, what's going on is what's always going on. Take a look at the, you know, the month-by-month returns. It's on my website, and you can see 
there are periods where it underperforms. You know, this is a long-term approach. And you have to be willing to accept short-term volatility. That's how we make our money. That's right. how you can't get rid of volatility and expect to make extraordinary profits. Right. So you, we really should be embracing that volatility. And, you know, even if it means that occasionally there are 10 or even 15% uh, drawdowns. Right. Because that's what's going to give us the high returns over the long run. We can be confident, though, if the future is anything like the past, that we're not going to have to suffer through these horrendous, you know, 40 or 50 percent drawdowns like uh, most buy-and-hold investors are who hold on Gary, having your back test, have you considered valuation-based exits um, in the markets or in stocks? I've not looked uh, just at exits. I've looked at uh, valuation timing. Okay. And... Uh, momentum is so strong that it dominates anything like that. There's no reason to incorporate something like that. The same thing with uh, stops. Uh, stops can be useful if you have nothing else. Right. But when you already have a risk uh, management framework like uh, absolute or dual momentum, uh, they're, they're worse than redundant. They, they actually detract rather than enhance. Okay. So, so you have used S&P, ACWI, and bonds for your strategy. I was just curious to figure out if uh, its application in India. I mean, how do you shortlist an asset class? We have Nifty for S&P, all right. We have bonds. But ACWI, we don't have any ETF taking care of the international markets. Right, Puneet? Yeah. yeah. And uh, you've also ruled out commodity and currency. Am I correct, Gary? Yes, but what you could do is you could uh, you could use the Nifty against the uh, the U.S. S&P and use relative strength for for those. All you need are two things that are going to move uh, differently to one another. And the fact that you're in India, you know, you should use one of one of your uh, markets there. Right. Uh, Gary, one question you know which I have in this regard is. Your whole premise lies in finding asset classes which are, let's say, not very highly correlated, right? So, uh, don't you think the correlation in itself is a very dicey number in the sense that when the market falls happens, most of the core, most of the things which are uncorrelated, they become correlated, and uh, on the both side, that's not the case. Do you think that is the right way of looking at it? Well, that's true. If, if when you're talking about uh, the relative momentum side of things, although I think the Nifty and Gold B, I mean, that, that's not going to be correlated. So that that was a that was a good choice. In fact, I was thinking of that because when I was in India, that's correct. Those were the two things that I, I saw that were quite liquid there. But when you're talking about moving in, into a, a safe harbor like uh, shorter-term bonds, right. uh, I don't think you're going to have that problem because... Uh, People are, are looking for safe harbors when everything uh, goes down. Right. So if you're at, you're at, and that's why I don't use long-term bonds because long-term bonds also have risk. And when, people, when there's a flight to safety, people want to get out of all risky assets. Right. So I prefer, I prefer using shorter-term bonds uh, as, as my safe harbor. And usually you're out before these types of uh, panics occur. Uh, you don't get out at the very top or in at the very bottom, but when you usually when you have the the very uncomfortable moves down, it's it's already 
you're already in a bear market. And by then, we're safely in, in short, short-term bonds by that time. True, true. That's true for any good trend-following system, isn't it? It should be. If you're not too short-term oriented, and that's why I prefer to take a longer-term approach to things. Right. Right. Um, anything else, Manish? From my end, I have, uh, I have asked all the questions I have for Gary. Uh, one last question. Uh, I'm just thinking uh, out loud. I, since gold and nifty something I've done, uh, would it also make sense to probably have a uh, uncorrelated relationship between uh, USD INR and Nifty? Because invariably they move in opposite directions too. Yes, I, I would actually prefer that to, to uh, gold uh, because gold tends to languish for long, long periods of time. Right. Uh, and uh, the, the real outperformance in gold just came in the 1970s when it was catching up. Right. Because it was uh, under pressure so much, so I you could use all three. There's no reason you have to limit it to two. But I would prefer uh, to to use the Nifty with with the uh, the US S and P. Yes, yes. And and do you also take uh, sectoral indices into consideration? I uh, I have a model for that, a sector rotation model. But here's here's an interesting uh, point too. Is when I develop my sector rotation model. I only had data back uh, to the early 1990s, right. but since then I was able to get data back to the uh, to 1970s, early 70s. Right. And when I did, I could see that the model wasn't as robust as one without sectors. And the reason is because sectors tend to be uh, too volatile. And a longer-term model like I have uh, would by the time we would get out of the sector sometimes, too much of the profits would, would be given back. And that's why something like, like gold could be a problem, too, because it, it has extreme volatility at times. Right. So what I found was that uh, the broader-based uh, market averages tend to do better, and that's what I stay with now. Right, right, got it. Uh, Gary, that's it from my side. Gary, uh, thanks a lot. It was a pleasure talking to you. And, <laughs> and you're as fascinating as a character as, um, you know, the forward from Wesley Gray uh, made me think. So, you know, before the before the podcast, I was telling Manish that it's going to be a very fun conversation. And I think I was not wrong. What about that, Manish? Bilkul, bilkul sahi. Bahut, bahut maza aya. Right. Thanks a lot, Gary. Thank you so much. Thanks, Gary. Take care. Take you care. too. Yep. You could. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, okay. Bye-bye.